Okay, Bokatov. Today's daf is Lamed Hay, and uh, we pick up um, on the Mishnah, Lamedal Ramad Bet. Okay, so the word Mishnah on the bottom there. And we, now we are starting, we've been dealing with some Tikkun Olam things that were connected to Gitin, um, and now we're going to turn to Tikkun Olam things for the betterment of the world that are not limited to Gitin. Obviously, right now, the betterment of the world has a very sort of local meaning, right? It's to make it that this woman isn't left in Aguna does it, or doesn't think she's divorced when she's not divorced or doesn't have people challenge her get incorrectly um, so uh, um, you could speak about sort of it's a more systematic because we want to obviously protect not a, you know all women in this type of situation it's, but nevertheless it's interesting who's the olam that we're being metakain right and what exactly is the nature of that tikkun um, so it's because tikkun olam is obviously a phrase that's used in other contexts you know for like broad universal social justice and so far here it's being used to you know protect people against uh, halachic abuse let's say you know or about being like about halacha putting them in a uh, you know about uh, in, in, a, in a difficult situation um, so um, particularly to protect the woman from people chal- incorrectly challenging the get or thinking she's divorced when she's not so let's see what the next example now that we begin to broaden it of tikkun olam is an almana a widow um, cannot collect from the uh, from the property of of the heirs of the orphans, um, except with a shvua. So here's a woman, uh, her husband died, her ksuva allows her to either stay on the estate and live on the estate and continue to be supported, you know, room and board. Um, so, um, or if she wants to, like, sort of separate herself from her previous husband's estate, go off on her own, then she can collect her lump sum ksuva payment, which is the uh, 200 zuz. So she now wants to go ahead and collect that lump sum ksuva payment. So she has to take an oath to the heirs that none of the ksuva had been prepaid during her lifetime. Okay. So that's the halacha. Um, but the problem is, is that they stopped making her take an oath because uh, the consequence of a sheker was very, very severe. And they were concerned that people, as we'll see in the Gemara, would, uh, would, would make oaths falsely, not intentionally, but somehow, but nevertheless it would occur. And we'll see that they were afraid that that would be too prevalent. And therefore they didn't make her take an oath. Of course, that didn't do her any good because by not letting her take an oath, they, weren't all, they also weren't letting her collect so she was really stuck um, so they're too firm to let her take an oath but then she's stuck without being able to collect so he became Rebbe Gamliel Hazake and so Gamliel the elder established she could solve it through a neder she could say if people remember from the Durham rather than an oath like if I'm lying like you know I take an, taking an oath in the name of God that you're telling the truth which is like bringing God as witness to bear witness to the truth of your statement um, and that's you know the Pasuk that says God will not cleanse the person who takes his name in vain so that's really sort of you know invoking the name of God to, at- to attest to the veracity of your statement a nether is very different a nether doesn't invoke God at all and a nether basically just says that this object mm-hmm. is forbidden like sort of like a korban is forbidden okay so what he would, they would do is they would shift to the world of nidarim and therefore it would it would it would, it would you know satisfy their concern for the veracity of her statement but uh, they would not be concerned about the consequences the severe consequences if it was false and what you would basically say was if I uh, you know had any of my ksuva prepaid during, while my, you know until this point then all of the fruit in the world will be forbidden to me okay so it's not an oath it's just making the food forbidden um, but then so the consequence will be she'll now have to live her life without eating any fruit okay or any and fruit probably has a broader meaning about like uh, you know about any you know any produce so um, so obviously it'll have very severe consequences so, so they can assume she's telling the truth but it will not be a shove so komashi to meaning the the, the orphans can pick now maybe it wouldn't be something as impossible as going through your life without ever eating any produce but they can pick whatever they want take an oath of X that you want not an oath excuse me a netter of X that you will never get any benefit from objects X, Y, and Z and uh, and if you're lying and then for and then you can go ahead and collect your ksufa okay the govik suvasa so that's uh, number two tikkun olam although we haven't said tikkun olam but that's going to be the wrap up statement at the end of the Mishnah number th- another tikkun 
olam. Ha'edim chos minal get mitnei tikkun olam. The the witnesses sign on a get for the sake of tikkun olam. So that's something that we've been quoting a lot, which basically means to allow the woman to remarry without having to produce the witnesses that were physically present. That's the position of Rabbi Eliezer that biblically you do not need witnesses to sign; you needed it rabbinically, but that allows her to remarry. And he'll he'll prisbo mitnei tikkun olam. He'll establish a prisbo for the sake of tikkun olam. It is interesting that the word tikkun olam did not exactly appear by the case of the almana. Obviously, it's implicit. He's keen, Rabbi but never actually says mitnei tikkun olam. Okay. Um, so anyway, so you have all these things of tikkun olam. Again, who is the olam that we are being mitakein? In one case, it's the widows. Okay. I mean, the obvious case is a woman being divorced. In one case, it's the widows. Here again, is a woman being divorced. Um, and in the final case, it is the whole need to borrow money. Is it the lenders? Is it the borrowers? Um, and you're talking about also a very broad sort of societal reality of how money is going to be uh, borrowed and paid back. Okay, but the olam still is the Jewish olam. You know, the olam. When you say the olam, okay, so you're not talking about the olam, the olam. Anyway, but um, uh, anyway, let's keep. But, but that, and also, it's interesting to see the natures of the tikkunim. Let's take a look at the Gemara. My dear Yalmana, why you say that an almana can't collect from the orphans without an oath? Anybody who's coming to collect from orphans has to take an oath because the father isn't alive to swear that to to to. I mean, maybe the father traded up and there's and he lost the receipt or the guy trust or he tr- or, or the guy he, the guy trusted him um, or he trusted the guy rather. Excuse me, not to have to produce the receipt. Um, and if the father was alive, he would have said, "What do you mean? I owe you a hundred dollars. I paid you up." Okay, so what do we do? Somebody's coming to collect a debt. The father isn't alive. He has an IOU. How do we defend the interests of the heirs? So the general rule is that anybody who comes to collect a debt after the principal is dead and is coming to collect, collect it from the heirs has to take an oath. So why did the minister say an almana, a widow, has to take an oath when she's coming to collect her ksuva? So does that anybody who's coming to collect a debt, even though the takana was for the almana, start by saying anybody has to take an oath who's coming to collect from the heirs, but then they stopped having the almana take the oath and therefore they established this takana. So why did it just focus on the almana, the widows need to take an oath. Um, somebody is coming to collect from the property of the heirs, um, of the orphans, though you fell up sure has to make an oath that the debt hadn't been paid up. So almana no. he wanted to underscore that even an almana, the halacha used to be, had to take an oath. I would have thought because of chain, of charm, of finding favor, the rabbis were, went lenient by her. What does that mean? It um, doesn't mean, oh, she's a, wom- a woman, we go easy on them, or something like that. It means that um, because this was related to the institution of marriage, and because anybody who would get married, you know, they wanted the ksuva available. Obviously, the whole point of the ksuva was in order that they would be able to collect if they were left widowed. Um, you might have thought that the rabbis might have said, look, in order to encourage women to marry, right, um, and not to be concerned that they won't be protected, or maybe, you know, whether it's an incentive to marry, or whether it's just in general, to ensure that women are protected with the ksuva, we have to go easy, and, uh, not, and, and not demand that they make a shvua. We have to do this to benefit the women, that they will, that this ksuva will really protect their interests, or that they'll trust that the ksuva will protect their interests, and so they'll marry. Okay? And therefore, we might, I might have thought that for that reason, um, they would not have to make a shvua when they went to, when they went to collect their ksuva, to mashmalan, that they did not say that. If you look at Rashi Mishubchina, Sheikhina Nashim Beinei Nashim Lina Selahem. The women would be prepared to marry. Prepared to marry. It's quite an interesting question, actually. Right? Like, who do you have to incentivize to get married? Um, so is it the men that have to be incentivized because they just want to remain single? Is it the women because they can't trust that their financial interests are being taken care of? Anyway, but the Gemara does sometimes say that there's this issue of Mishum China, okay, that maybe we need to, you know, and again, it could be read as to incentivize women to marry or it could be said to ensure that their interests are protected. So it didn't start that way. It started by saying a woman when she collects her ksuva like anybody else who's coming to collect from the heirs and has to make a shrua. But then they realized that uh, because people were being from and saying, uh-oh, we don't want her to take a shua. Maybe she'll take a false shua. She was really hurt by the fact that she didn't even have an, op- an option, a way of collecting her shua because they won't let her take a shua. So Rebbe Gamliel made this institution of the neder. Yes. 
wouldn't we maybe also be worried that if it's too hard to collect after he dies, that she's going to be trying to convince him to divorce her? Isn't that kind of... Oh. Like um, well, maybe. Um... Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a little... Uh, it, that would be... I mean, given that the man has all of the power, unilateral power, I mean, it is true. There are some times we're concerned that she might try to make his life so miserable. But then it also... Look, it's... Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, it could be. But I, I think that that's like a little bit more of a... A little more of a far-fetched scenario. Because it's not like when she then tries to collect the ksuba even if he's alive. Although she doesn't have to make a shrua. But he can still make a counterclaim, you know. So it, I, I don't see that as more as the immediate thing to be concerned about. All right. Nimu milash bia. So they... So then what they stopped... But then they stopped making her take an oath. So they were... We'll see. They were afraid she would make a false oath. And we'll see why maybe it was particularly a concern about widows. Why did they let other people make oaths. So the Gemara says, my timer, what reason? Maybe it's because of the story of Rav Kahana Marav. Excuse me, Rav Kahana. Excuse me. I'm Rav Kahana because Rav Kahana said, I'm Rav Yehud, I'm Rav. I read in the name of Rav. There's a story about a certain man in the time of uh, famine. Is that he left a, this wasn't even a case of a husband. It seems to be a normal man. Just uh, had a widow, right? I mean, it could be the husband leaving it by the widow. <laughs> a normal man left by the widow a gold coin um, to watch on his behalf. And she put it in a, in, you know, in a, uh, a, a, a pitcher of flour. Um, it, um, and as it's going to see, accidentally she forgot about it. It was a great hiding place. So great of a hiding place that she forgot about it and then she baked it into bread. I don't know how she didn't feel it as she was kneading the dough, but okay. Um, how big is a dinare? I mean, no, we have Roman dinare. Are they big? Are they small? Anybody know? Where's Charlie? Okay. Okay. And then... Because uh, because it was a, a, a period of famine, presumably that's the context of it being a period of famine. She gave this loaf of bread to an ani. The yummy babala dinar. Then the uh, person who uh, who entrusted the dinar came to her. The amar one said to Hamali dinari, give me my dinar. Um, Amar she said to him. So she said, look, I can't find it. I don't know what happened to it. But yehaner sam hamaves bechadi banes shalosi isha poison should, uh, should 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 be effective. Or, you know, should should uh, one one of the children of that woman, meaning one of my children, right, should be po- should, should, should succumb to poison. Um, if I got any benefit out of your dinar, I'm promising you I did not steal it, I didn't do anything with it, I don't know what happened to it, I can't find it. Okay, it was the case, I guess, if she was a Shomer Chinam, she's exempt from Geneva Naveda, she said she lost it. All right, whether that was negligence or not, we'll see. But anyway, but she's taking an oath that she got, derives no benefit from it. Um, I'm Amr, they said, it was not too long. One of her children died. Now, how did she benefit from it? We'll see in a minute. All right, so you've already figured it out. Okay. And when the rabbi sages heard the matter, Amru, and they said, Somebody who swore truthfully, look at how the consequences. How much more so somebody who intentionally falsely, what the consequences will be by taking a false oath. So my time, my answer. Now the Gemara wants to figure this out. Why was she punished? I mean, she actually did not benefit from it. So the Gemara's answer is, she started Shila Makam Dinar. No, she benefited because she benefited from the volume that the dinar took up in the bread. And I, the, uh, the double irony is that she didn't even eat the bread herself. She gave the bread to an ani. So, like, what benefit did she get from giving it? Right? It's like she didn't give extra stuff away, but it was her complete decision to give it away. Yeah, she didn't get, even forget without that, she didn't get the benefit of, like, you know, Olin Habo of Tzedakah somehow? Like, you know, honey, like, you know, I don't know. Okay, that, no, we don't consider. The, yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't call consider a mitzvah benefit benefit for these things. Okay, so anyway, so that was the benefit. So then Mark says, Umay means the benefit. So then, if that explains why she was punished, why does it say, look, if somebody who swore truthfully had this happen to them, but it wasn't a truthful oath. Your whole point was was that actually it was a false oath. So Mark says, okay, it was as if it was truthful. In her mind, she was swearing, swearing truthfully. So somebody who's intending to swear truthfully and accidentally, you know, made a mistake and said something wrong and swore falsely and it gets such a severe 
punish, punishment, how much more so someone who intentions swears falsely. So now the Gemara says, now of course the problem with this is that if that's the reason why you don't make her take an oath, why do you make anyone take an oath? Right? Why did they continue to allow, you know, men to take oaths? Or the Gemara is going to say, why did they continue to allow women who are grushas to take oaths? Like why? Because the case was an almana, all of a sudden we see that there's going to be a problem with almanas. So we'll see in a minute that it might have uniquely to do with the relationship of the almana to her dead husband. So the Gemara says like this, or to the heirs. So let's take a look. Right, exactly. Okay, so the Gemara says like this. If that's true, if that was the reason they made it not take an oath, why specifically an almana? Even a grusha. I could have said even any person. So, why did Rebzeir say in the Mishmua? The only person that they had not said couldn't take an oath was an almana. But a grusha they would. What difference would it be? Maybe we're afraid they'll swear falsely because and intentionally or unintentionally that they really will have had some of the ksuva paid up and they'll have forgotten about it or they'll be lying. So the Muslims know. Amman is shani. Amman is different. That we had a real concern. Because she, you know, she, she uh, exerts effort for the orphans. There she is. She's in her, her, her dead husband's home. She's living with her kids. And, you know, she's doing favors for them. She's cooking. She's cleaning. Nobody's paying her for that. Okay? I mean, you could say some of that had to do with the ksuva arrangement. But now, whatever the matter, obviously she's going to be helping out at the house in ways that she's not obligated for. And therefore, um, she'll come to rationalize and herself and she'll come to actually take some money in payment of the ksuva and tell herself that she's allowed to. Now, does that mean that she actually will consciously say, I'm going to go to my, you know, oh, I found $100 here in my husband's drawer. I'll just take it as payment of the ksuva, but I'm allowed to have my ksuva paid up because of whatever. Now, if that's the case, it's hard to imagine that then she's going to swear, you know, that she didn't have a ksuva paid up. She consciously knows that she took money in payment of her ksuva. But that's presumably the point is that it's not that conscious. Like, you basically say, oh, look, here's 20 bucks. You know what? I've been working so hard, I owe myself, like, a nice, uh, a, a nice lunch out. And you take the money, take a lunch out. Now, wh- wh- why, you know, that was uh, your dead husband's money. What, what did that mean that you took $20 and you spent it on yourself? Right? So that's, that's defined as taking money towards the ksuva payment. You took money that belonged to the dead husband's estate. It wasn't coming to you. You spent it on yourself. So, in, you know, your mind, it's like, man, I've been working so hard. I deserve to go out for a cup of coffee and you took the money, right? So, and then you take an oath that, like, I didn't de- benefit any from any of my dead husband's property. So, yeah, in your own mind, it's exactly like this case. In your own mind, you don't, you think it's true, right? Yeah, never so, saw any what? Never saw either, well, think, well, okay, so the point is, it's true. So we have to be able to balance that. We need to allow her to collect. We need her to allow her to take an oath, but we don't want to deal with the severe consequences of a shrua. So, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the middle ground. But it seems that it's unique to, if I'm just a creditor and I'm taking an oath to the orphans, right, I'm, what's the scenario in which I took some money, pocketed some money, and I rationalized it, and in my mind I think I didn't do anything wrong, right? There isn't a scenario. In a grusha, in an amana, there's a common scenario. So although the original case with this dinar and the bread happened to be an amana and her status as amana was pretty irrelevant to the story, but the ongoing, the concern is that an amana will, you know, will, will have taken some money from the estate, rationalized it, like, you know, people at work, you know, they take home, you know, a pen or whatever, a pad of paper, you know, and they rationalize. So, it's the same type of a concern and that's why they had to stop making a shrua. Yes, though. All the way through, from Ketubot, all the way through, the working marriage seems to very much be clearless. Like, is this his money or her money? Right. It's it's really not. I mean, do people today structure their marriages that way commonly? No. Right. right. So it's a really a different. Yeah, I mean, sure. The whole economics of marriage was completely different. The husband was the provider. The wife. I mean, it was an old-fashioned marriage. The husband was the provider. It was his money. The wife was the housekeeper and the one who raised the children, and she was living off of his money and uh, for in his house, and that's what the whole thing was about. So basic. You right. Have to say out loud. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not so. Yeah. You have to. I mean, did you see the article about the Upper East Side, the wives with the the bonuses. No, no. The marriage bonuses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Recent, like, look at it. 
uh, like several months ago, like an article came out about uh, a tell-all about Upper East Side wives and like you know they his get money, her money, that right? And she gets bonuses if she does a good job that month. Oh my God! Wow. Anyway, anyway, yeah. If you're really yeah. concerned about financial malfeasance, why don't you just make her submit a general ledger in addition to then knitter or sure. In other words, these are my hotels, and this is what I, you know, collect. In other words, she's going to give a ledger. I'm she saying. should require her to. In other words, really boring. Yeah. You know, she's going to rationalize and say, oh, well, you know, it's just my business. I think, look, look, I think you raise a good question. I think, like, that gets to the Tikkun Olam question. Like, what's the type of an institution that the society could manage to require every woman, not everybody, man or woman, whatever, you know, is good with numbers or, you know, can be responsible to take that. Yeah, right, you don't, it's, it's not that you have a business. You're just a housekeeper. All of a sudden, you cry everybody. So I think the question is that, you know, what's uh, it's reasonable to have everybody take a note and then you can correct. Um, I get your problem. <laughs> you know, no, no solution is going to solve every case. Now, take the two quick toasts. Tosa says on the first one, Lo Ma'atim. Tosa says, Vim Zomer, my time he honors, Sharmina Perikim Rishuas, Adam Bishua, Prat Laonis. Kidav Kanav Rav Kahani. Okay. Tamar Mishtabahachi Amarav, Tamar Mishtabahachi Amarav. So, basically, Tosa points out that there's a Gemara that says that when you take an oath and you think you're telling the truth, it's not a shuas sheker. If in your mind you're telling the truth, the Gemara says you don't transgress. Okay, so it's not like you transgressed bishogeg. She didn't transgress. She thought she was telling the truth. All right. So to skip to the end of Tosfos. So it goes through the whole thing, and then three lines from the end, Tosfos says, "V'yesh lomar dahacha gabi pikadon hayalolihi zaher yoter lishamro heitev." Rabbi Leilasukei daite shetavli deishvua. Now here it was entrusted to her safekeeping, so she had a part a heightened responsibility. So since she was negligent, okay, even though it's interesting, like she thought she was telling the truth, but since she was negligent in her mistake, okay, therefore, it's not like the situation was outside of my control, because, like, if I genuinely honestly think it, okay, you honestly think it, but you're being, but you're negligent in the reason you have that belief, that you should have, there's reasons that you shouldn't have that belief, so you weren't taking enough care to have the right information, um, so anyway, that's that a very interesting, yeah, over anything? Like yeah, well, that's the Gemara in the Durham, and insurance, but we didn't, but anyway, but well, I'm not having that conversation. I just want to point that out. Okay, anyway. Um, okay, so, so now the next one is, look at this next one. Right? Because Mark doesn't quote it here, but it's implicit in the story, but it's like, it's very weighty, okay, and then he says, and that isn't so weighty. Somebody has to testify or swear to something in court yeah. in general, right? So this is the question. Why only the woman? So this leads to a, a greater, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, reservation or a, a fear of anybody taking the shvua because any honest mistake, although Tosa deals with the fact that if you genuinely believe it's true, but any negligence, any type of a, you know, mistake that's not completely uh, faultless, is, it's a very, very severe consequences so they had people take a cherem, right? Which is basically like, you know, like a, a, a you know, God should curse me type of a thing. Yeah, okay. Okay, right. But again, it's not real consequences as the shrua. All right. And that, by the way, that's important because I'm seeing, I, I assume people have, are aware of the fact that, you know, for like uh, hundreds of years, if not, you know, more, if not, a, you know, if not over like a thousand years, you know, Jews, very, the, why does it, when a Jew goes to court, you know, they say, do you affirm to say, of you swear, right? Because the deep-seated, uh, you know, sort of uh, recoil from taking a shvua, even a shvua's emes, right? I don't know. They don't do shvua. Okay, they might do chaim. I'm not sure exactly. I, I don't know. Okay, but anyway, but this is sourced in like this gemara. Okay, it started with the almana, but logically, then it should be about anyone. Okay, so Tosos now why don't they, they do neder? Maybe if you're even neder, also. But you know, but anyway, we move away from shvua, even a shvua's emes. Okay, so that's uh, so that's a very important in terms of that principle. Um, so now, uh, the, oh, the other thing I wanted to say which is interesting is you know, it's a difference between a shru and an Allah. We sort of have this by Sota, right? A shru is just, I swear that I'm telling the truth, period. An Allah is, if I'm lying, let, let God curse me, let this bad thing happen to me. Right? The only quote language that she used was really language of an Allah, right? That if I'm lying, let my son, you know, die of poison or something like that. She didn't take an oath to say I'm telling the truth. Presumably, that preceded it, 
But it is interesting. Are we talking about a Shavuah? Are we talking about an Allah? It does seem, you know, here there's sort of not distinguishing between the two. Okay. So now to take, they're saying it's a Shavuah, but this quote does not have the language of a Shavuah. Okay. So now the Gemara says like this. Um, uh, where are we? Um, Okay. When is this true that we don't make her take an oath only in the court? We can make her take an oath outside of the court. Now, what difference does it make? I mean, if it's a concern about the heavy consequences of an oath, so why, why should we be prepared to do it out of the court? So if you look at Rashi, about eight lines from the narrow lines at the top, Rashi says, Rashi says, so in Basin, it's like you use a Sefer Torah, you hold on to it, and you use God's name, and it's very weighty. The Chutz Basin, Shur Durabanan, is a Durabanan Shur, the Kilav Arur, so that's like the case of the woman. You don't, take a, you don't take an oath in the name of God, you just say, let me, you know, let's, you know, let me be cursed or whatever. The Lonakit Midi, you don't hold on to a Sefer Torah. The ain own shakokach, and the, it's not as severe. So oh, that, sounded, and that sounded like the case of the of the son, but maybe that was right. Exactly. So the, let's see what the Gemara does with it. Okay. So you have different things. Of, so those are three different. So two different interesting things. Whether you're holding on to a sefer Torah, you know, or some holy object, and whether you you invoke God's name or not. Okay. So now let's go back. And then Tosus has a whole discussion about is the difference between Doraisa or Dorabanan, in basin, out of basin. Anyway, let's take a look. So the Gemara says Avachutz so we would be prepared to do it. Anius is true. Rav refused to collect the Ksuv for an Almana because we'll see it's against the Mishnah. We'll see, but he felt that you couldn't even have her take a Neder. So once he was having her field, he couldn't take a Neder. As we'll see, he be, be and now of course that's obviously terrible. She's left without her Ksuva. We'll get to that. But the Gemara says, but why didn't according to this, why didn't he just have her take a a, a Shvua outside of Basin? So Mr. says Tasha. All right, you're right. That's difficult because this was said in the name. And the problem is that this was said in the name of Rav. So if, how, if Rav says you could have her take a shrew out of Basin, how could Rav feel that you there's ways that she won't be able to collect? Just have her take a shrew out of Basin. Okay, so that's one version where we end in Akasha. Then the Gemara has another version and says the following. Um, where were we? Um, that's how they taught it in Surah. But in Arda, but in Arda they teach it the following way. Yeah, I'm um, yes. So this is Rav Yudam the name of Shmuel. Rav is in part of this statement. That Shmuel said you could do it outside of Beistin. The Rav and Rav disagreed. And he said, you can't even do a Shmuel out of Beistin. Rav Lutai made the Rav and Rav is consistent because Rav wouldn't collect the Ksuv for Nomana. We'll see why he couldn't use a Neder. But he, but he feels you can't use a Shuit outside, even outside of Bastin. Okay? So now the Gemara finally says, okay, maybe he felt a Shuit in or out of Bastin is off limits. But how about the Neder? So make her take a Neder and collect, like our Mishnah says. That was the whole Kakana. So the Gemara says, Now, in the, in the time of Rav, people treated Nedarim lightly, and therefore he was afraid that either the, taking a neder would improve anything or that he didn't want her to, to transgress and have the punishment of a false neder so he felt that a neder was not a viable option it didn't have that right balance of being weighty enough to do the job and to keep her honest but not so weighty that, we, that the consequences would be disastrous and of course the problem is it's like doesn't get a like, whatever happens to Rebbe Gamliel like he didn't feel compelled enough and we're going to see a few stories like this by the whole impetus of the takana of Rebbe Gamliel to say whatever I'm going to say the whole point of the mission is to teach me that I have to find a path to make it viable to make a woman able to collect exuva. and the fascinating thing is that they didn't feel that compulsion okay so let's take a look at another story a woman came in front of Allah, he said to her and basically to collect exuva. look look, I can't help you Rav wouldn't collect exuva for no money and I'm now going to follow Rav's authority now that's funny right it sounded like it's no longer that he necessarily shared Rav's opinion. Maybe the Nedr for him would have been a good enough thing. Maybe people were taking Nedr seriously. But all of a sudden now Rav becomes an authority, right? So it's very, it's an interesting like problem, you know. The authority of Rav is now getting in the way of this whole mana and of the whole, uh, you know, concern of Rebbe Namliyo. Um So Amalei, so she said to him, Midi um, hu 
Tzvasi. Look, your whole concern is that maybe I've already taken collection of some of my Ksuva. Chai Hashem Tzvokos in the Nesini Ksuvasi Klum. By the life of God, I did not take anything from my Ksuva. So she took a Shrua. They weren't making you take a Shrua, but she just jumped in and took the Shrua. So Amar Rav Huna, Rav Huna said, Oh, oy, please, you can't do that. I'm sorry. Hey, hey, what are you doing? Hey, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. What? You can't be getting undressed here. No, I'm just taking... <laughs> Eddie, all right. So, I'm a Rav Huna. So, Rav Huna said, Moda Rav the Kofetas. You know, Rav agrees that if she jumps in and takes the oath, that, uh, that then it's valid, okay? So, we won't make her take an oath because we can't be sort of responsible for a false oath. But if she took an oath, that's because oaths are so severe, obviously that would be valid. So now women have to know that uh, trick. I wonder what happens if, what trick, whatever that opposite. I wonder what happens if she jumped in and took a neder. Right, would that be good? Maybe not. Maybe a neder Rob would feel wouldn't prove anything. But an oath does prove something. Okay? Um, Somebody came in front of Rabbi Barafuna. Amalah said, and he said to her, My Abimah, look, I can't help you. Again, quoting the authority of Rav. And not only that, the Abimari, and, you know, my father wouldn't collect it so Amalai she said to him fine you don't want to allow me to collect my lump sum payment I'll go back to live on my husband's estate and let me be supported by my husband's estate which is what was the situation until now so Amalai he said to her no I'm sorry now you've lost your opportunity to be supported by the estate that once a woman demands payment of her ksuva she's no longer supported by the estate. The reason she's supported by the estate is she's sort of seen as still like, you know, you know, be like like a continuation of her husband still. She's still living in her husband's house. You know, she's supported by the estate. As soon as it's clear that she wants to break away from her dead husband's, you know, family and establish now her own independence, right, then she's no longer part of the estate and now she gets her ksuva payment. So as soon as you express that desire, you basically said, you're no longer part of your dead husband's, uh, you know, sort of family. Um, so if that's true, you know, and you know, in his household, I should say, no longer part of his household. So now you no longer can be supported by the estate. So no, she's caught both ways, right? She gets the ketuvah. No, but he said that once you demand it, you've basically changed your identity. You've changed your status. So obviously this is complete. This is this is completely unconscionable, right? So let's take a look. So by the way, though, but it does show you that when Rav didn't collect the ksuva for the Omana, it was it didn't have to be a complete disaster because as long as she didn't demand the ksuva, she could at least continue to be supported she wouldn't be able to take that money and set off on her own but you know at least it wasn't a complete disaster anyway so now but now this woman is completely stuck okay so the Gemara says so he says Amalei she said to him Afchua course like you know his chair meaning your chair should be turned upside down like you know you know it was some type of an impa- of, of, uh, of a curse Kibay Trey Avdili you're going to do to me like both of these you're going to pass in one way to prevent me from collecting my suv and the other way to prevent me from continuing to get Mizonos? So, Hafchua say. so what they did is they actually literally. Fu- they literally fulfilled her curse. They turned his chair upside down, the Tertu, and stood it up upside down in order to say, like, at least her curse was fulfilled so it won't actually, imp- you know, imp- impact me, you know, impact the, uh, whoever the rabbi was, who was the rabbi, Rabbi Barav Huna, but he didn't sa- save himself from getting sick. He got sick as a result of the curse. Okay, so the sad thing here is, you know, as I said, is that now you're having these later authorities that are trumping Rabbi Gamliel's authority and now they're being quoted and they're becoming these roadblocks and it doesn't even sound like it's because of the reason is, see, you know, is, is seen as a problem. It's just, well, Rav said and whatever happened to the whole motivation of Tikkun Olam. Okay, so let's take a look. Amar le Rav Yehuda Rav Yirmiya Bira So Rav Yehuda said to Rav Yirmiya Bira Ad Rav Yibasin So now we're going to get stories where they actually where they actually sound, you know, who said a woman has to collect her ksufa. So have her take a neder in Beistin, the Ashba Chutzla Beistin, and have her take the Shua Chutzla Beistin. So now it seems like, let's do both. Okay, we're concerned that it's not going to be fully proving it. A neder doesn't have the power it used to have. Do the neder in Beistin and have the Shua outside of Beistin and with the combination of those two. Now once you're having a Shua outside of Beistin, why not just, uh, just, just do the Shua? Maybe people felt that that also wasn't fully weighty. Meaning it wasn't, um, you know, before when we said can you have to take a shrew out of basin it seemed like the concern was was you know 
would the consequences still be dire? But here it sounds like the concern of a Shu outside of Basin is, is it weighty enough to prove what we needed to prove? So here he's sort of saying, do both. Have a Shu outside of Basin, an editor in Basin, but you've got to find a way that she's going to collect her, shru, her Ksuva. Okay? The lazy call of Lipo Beudni, let the announcement go out and let me hear, let me, let me hear in my own ears that you've done this. Okay? Um, that I want to know that you actually have acted on this, that she actually has collected her ksuva. Okay, so here he said, this is not acceptable. Now, we've got to find a way that she's going to collect her ksuva. So that's nice that the pushback, based on obviously what the whole point of the tikkun olam was. Okay, gufa. Let's now go take a look at that earlier statement. This is only an almana who has to make, who they would, who they would not let make a shvua of a grusha mashpina. So a grusha could, because we're not afraid that she'll rationalize. The grusha de adralo. So now, are we, would that suggest that if we make, if we didn't make any special takana for a grusha, if a grusha made a ned there instead of a shvua, presumably it doesn't work. Presumably she has to make the classic shvua that everybody makes. Okay, but is that really true? But they sent from there. From Eretz Yisrael back to Bavel, Ech Plonisa Bas Plonis, Ploni, you know, Sarah, the, the daughter of Yaakov, Kavilis Gita, she received her Gita, Minyada the Achabarhida, from the hand of Achabarhida, the Miskari Ayamari, whose name, who's also called Ayamari, there's that issue of different names, the Naderet Vasteret Peotcheba Olam Aleha, and she took a vow, and she said that the fruit, all the fruit in the world would be forbidden to her, and if, the Lo Kavilis Miksuvasa, that the only thing that she received from her Ksuva were the following things, and she took a vow that all the food in the world would be forbidden for her if she's lying. What did she admit that she was already prepaid the ksuva? Ela grufkara echad, a certain a coat, the sefer tihilim echad, and a scroll of tihilim, the sefer eov, and a scroll of eov, umem shalot, and a sefer mishle. So I just want to pause here for a moment and say that is fascinating, right? A woman wanted to collect these things. So basically, women would learn, and it still makes sense, like tihilim, right? Is davening, but what's really fascinating. It's Eov and Mishle, which are, you know, like the Mishle is sort of like, okay, like Musari, right? So she's got Tanakh and Musar, that's what they still teach girls in Beis Yaakov. <laughs> but she's also got like Eov, which is like philosophy, right? So you got, you got Tanakh and, you know, I mean, you got Tila and Musar and Jewish philosophy. What? Yeah, why not? That was belonged to the husband. That were, you know, obviously scrolls had value, right? So that she's taken from her husband's estate, okay? Shilla Blueim, and they were somewhat like worn out so they weren't like brand new okay and we uh, estimated their value at five mana okay so that's how much of her shuva has been paid off and she took a vow to that effect not a shuva she's now going to come back to Bavel and her husband's estate is in Bavel so make sure she gets paid the, re- the remainder of the, of the shuva so anyway you see that she took it's so great right that little you know, you know window into like real life right Anyway, but now you see that she took a neder, and this was a case of a grusha. So it seems like a grusha can take a neder. So Amar Avashi, who get yavnim have? This was a get yavnim. Now, what's a get yavnim? So Rashi says it means that one of the brothers, she was obligated in Yibam, one of the brothers gave her a get to prevent Yibam from happening, him or the other brothers. You would have to do chalitza. And now she's collecting from her dead husband's estate. She's really an almana. Her husband died. The get she got was from one of her husband's brothers to basically say, we're not going to do Yibam, we're only going to do Chalitza. The problem with that is, that Tosa says, is that you don't collect from the dead husband's estate until after the Chalitza is done. Not the get, the get from the brother-in-law is not enough. You actually need the Chalitza to be done. Okay? So Tosa has another version. Tosa's version is, um, uh, oh, that he actually did Yibam with the brother-in-law so she was now married to the brother-in-law he divorced her okay you following this Reuben died Yehuda married her the brother married her then he divorced her now that she's divorced from Yehuda where does she collect her ksuva from Reuben's estate she goes back to her first husband's estate that's the nature of Yibum that was considered a continuation of the first husband's you know relationship so now that she's going back to collect from Reuben's estate she was divorced from Yehuda but she collects from Reuben's estate so that's why it's really a case of an amana, not a case of a of of a crucia, yes. You know, we've said in various uh, circumstances earlier, you know, a woman needed a good lawyer for this. She should know what to say. Right. So here it's as if, you know, in a way, I mean, they're saying she's a righteous woman, but also she's saying things 
that would get, look, make her look good in the in the for the court. You mean that she's taking a vow? Oh, you mean that? She, she, oh, that she took these types of of of. Uh, not the hill and the oh, <laughs> could be, could be. It's a good point. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, I, w- I do want to point out that Tozos makes an interesting question about the nature of the neder. Tozos is a little bit bothered with the uh, avow that I won't eat any, f- all the fruit in the world is forbidden to me. Because fruit, by the way, doesn't just mean fruit. Fruit means like produce. So that's basically a vow that's impossible to keep. So Tozos says, so that's a case where, okay, you could say fine. So she's lying. It's a false vow. She transgressed the false vow. There's a gemara that says somebody takes a vow to forbid sleep on himself. He gets lashes right away because he made a vow that's impossible. So maybe what she's basically saying is if I'm lying, then I right now will have made a false vow. But it doesn't sound that way. It doesn't sound like that you can sort of, to prove you're telling the truth, say, and if I'm, lou- I'm, if I'm lying, I'm making this vow, which will be a transgression. It sounds like that to prove you're telling the truth, you have to live your life through the restraint or the constraint of this vow. Right? You understand? So if the nature of the vow is all the fruit of the world is forbidden to me, that's if you had taken that vow, you wouldn't be able, you'd be permissible to eat the fruit. You just said would have made a false vow. So that is not enough to prove that you're honest. To say, if I'm lying, I now will may have made a transgression of a false vow. To prove you're honest, you have to be bound by the rest of your life by the consequences of your vow. Okay, and that even and that if it, so, if you said like so, like so, if you said all apples would be forbidden to me, that means that any time in the rest of your life, every single time you eat an apple, you will transgress again. Your whole life, you will go being bound by this vow. Okay, so Tosos reads that this vow is of that type of a nature um, and that it's something that's possible to live by and therefore will bind you for your whole life. Okay, so let's continue now in the Gemara. So he made a takana that she should make, she can make, she can make a vow. That's only true when, she, as long as she has not gotten married. Okay, so she's going to collect the lump sum payment, and now she's probably looking for a second husband. Okay, so now, so we say, you want to go ahead and collect the ksuva, fine, make a vow. But that ability to make a vow is only as long as she's not married. Why? Once she's married to a second husband, a vow won't work we don't have her take the vow and therefore she's stuck he can't collect her ksuva why won't a vow work because Nisei's my timer the Mayfield Labau so the Gemara says one minute so I get it why is it that once she's married the vow won't work and she can't collect because if she makes the vow her husband can annul the vow right Yes? Yeah. Maybe they remember that? A husband can know a vow that a woman makes? Whose wife makes? So therefore the vow won't work anymore once she's married. So the mother says, one minute. If that's true, so Kilo Nisa is Nami. So even if she didn't get married yet and she makes a vow, why does that work? As soon as she gets married, then her husband will find out about it and he'll know it's the day that she gets married. So the mother says, no, no, no. That's not a concern. The husband cannot annul vows that pre-existed the marriage. Okay? So therefore, as long as she makes the vow when she's not yet married, she's going to be bound by it. But if she makes the vow when she is married, we're afraid that she will not be bound by it. But she gets married to a second, she gets married, she remarries and has not collected the ketubah, then the ketubah is not coming to her anymore? Uh, oh, because no. she doesn't have this option of the vow. Now, she could probably go ahead and make a shavua, like chutzle, you know, she could be kofetzet finishbeit, but, but yes, but because she no longer has the option of the But the ikaradin, the ketuba money, is coming to her. She just she's owed the money. She has no way of collecting. no instrument for it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, if she goes ahead and gets... We assume the atomium was not of their own sense of what's right. They could choose to do whatever they want, but, you know, yeah. Okay. So, um, so the more says one minute now that we're talking about the possibility of getting out of your vow right so any, per, any woman who makes a vow now again by the way you really the difference between a shvua if you have an, a future oriented shvua you could also get it annulled right by a um, like you know by a chacham I, I, I'll, I'll, I take a shvua that I will do X, Y, and Z right so then I get a chacham to annul it but if it's a past oriented shvua I swear right somebody says that they swear in the name of God that they didn't do the following or they did the following Right? So at that moment, you've either transgressed, you've made a Shwish Shekhar, or you haven't. So there's no idea of being released from it by a Chacham. So the Gemara says, but if it's this Neder, even if she's not married, she, she can be released from it, right? So a Shvua, she can, it isn't a concern. But now that we've shifted to a Neder, she could always be released from it. Go to a Chacham, do a Hataras Nedarim, and get out of it. Okay? So why are we not, why, why does this work? Um, and he'll permit it. 
No, we believe that you have to detail the vow. Now, when we normally say detail the vow, I think what we normally think that means is give the specifics of what you vowed. Um, you know, that I vowed that I would do, because normally like on Hatar Stadar we do on Erev Rosh Hashanah, we say, you know, I made a vow, I made vows, you know, free me from them, I wish I hadn't made them. And then we say, what is it? Something. But I have to detail it, but there are too many I can't detail. So there are the senses, and you're not even telling me what you vowed, right? Say the specifics of I vowed I wouldn't eat X, Y, and Z if, if A, B, and C happen. But here, okay, part of Lefaritaneder is the circumstances and the conditions of the vow. So since you have to give me the circumstances and the conditions, she goes to a Chacham, and the Chacham says, So what made you take this vow that all the fruit of the world is forbidden to you, or that you would never eat apples? Well, you see, I was coming to collect my Ksuva, and I swear, and I did this vow. So says, uh, I can't release you from that vow, right? Because that whole vow is what let you collect. So since if you hold that you have to give the details, you won't be released from the vow. Um... Um, so no you have to give the details of the circumstances and therefore we're not afraid I mean we'll assume you'll be truthful to the Chacham I mean it can only go so far you could lie to the Chacham actually that would be an interesting question if you lie to the Chacham and he released you from the vow based on false information presumably it wouldn't be good it wouldn't be, good, it wouldn't be a good Hatara right I don't know that's an interesting question right I took a vow about never eating apples I, I, you lie what the circumstances were presumably and you lied about it it's not a good Hatara Okay, so we're not afraid that you'll be released from the vow because you'll have to give the circumstances and then you won't be released from it. All right? So Rav Nachman Amar, a few Nises, even if she's married, we let her take the vow. Now, Nises, how could that be? So just get her husband to annul it. No, we make her take a vow in public. And we'll take a vow. when you take a vow in public, the presumption is it can no longer be annulled by the husband or by a chacham. Now, there's going to be two concepts that Gemara is going to introduce. One is birabim, and the other is aldas rabim. Now, those are different concepts. Birabim means, once it's a public matter, it's no longer a private affair. As long as it's a private affair, I can go ahead and say, my kavana was X, Y, Z, my husband can annul it for me, a chacham can annul it for me. If it's a public matter, then there's not like a mechanism. Those mechanisms are private mechanisms, right? There's no, uh, you know, then it's just something that's owned, like, you know, published in the newspaper. You can't retract something once it's published in the newspaper. It's a matter of public record, okay? The Das Rabin is a little different. Das Rabin means, uh, based on what it's like not, no longer based on my intent it's based on what everybody else would be thinking at this time and would desire for the conditions of the vow so that's going to be still fundamentally there's an opening to annul it because it still is a question about I'm doing it in private but I'm saying it doesn't just have to do with what's going on in my mind it has to do with what everybody else would want under these circumstances also and we'll see what that means in a minute okay that probably is a little less clear we'll get to that in a minute but let's first start with Birab and she does it in public and Therefore, it's no longer it's no longer open for being annulled. Okay, so that solves that problem. Nisei, I'll ask you on this. Nisei skovik suvasa inagra. We have a brayta that says if she's married, she can collect the suva she made a vow. So you see that that can, that works with that supports this latter opinion that you can make it once you're married and challenges Rav Huna who says you can't. So the Gemara says my love nadra hashta. It sounds like she made the vow now after she got married, and that's a challenge on Rav Huna who says you can't make a vow when you're married. No. Dinadra Meikara, she made it originally before she was married. Vatanya Nisis, but we have another bright that says if she got married, no derech, she makes a vow now. The Govak Suvas and Kalekshik Suvas, it's clear that that supports again the second position. Who was the second one who said this? Um... Rav Nachman. It supports Rav Nachman that she can make a vow, and it challenges Rav Huna, who says she cannot. So it says, Tanayi, it's a debate of Tanayim. So bottom line is, this is what it hinges on. The one that says she can make a vow once she's married feels that it would be a public vow. I mean, this is really, by the way, you don't need to do anything special to make it a public vow. She's making it in Bastin, right? That's already a public vow. So it's a public vow, and therefore feels that you can do it even when you're married and the one that says the, t- the brighter that says you can't do it once you're married says that doesn't help because we're still that could still be an old alright by 10 maybe I don't know I said maybe okay I don't know yes. what Rashi says 10 
Okay, but even so, you know, it's not hard to achieve the Rabbim. Yeah, right, Rashi says, but it's not hard to achieve the Rabbim once you're in the basin context, okay? So, all right. Yeah, exactly. All right. So anyway, so we have this debate. Can the woman make it once? A, why are we in general not afraid that she'll get it an old? Okay, and that could be because she has to detail it, or maybe there's a scenario of the Rabbim. Can a woman make it once she's married? There's a debate of Tanaim, a debate of Rafun and Rav Nachman, and that debate hinges on whether when it's made Barabim by Dasara, which we would do and we would make sure she would do, would that be sufficient to prevent the ability to annul it? Okay, yes. And the notion of Barabim include women? Uh, yeah, that's I don't know. That's always a question. Okay, They ask the five questions. Do you have to detail it? Rav Nachman Amar You don't have to. Okay, which is interesting because Rav Nachman was the one that said that you can make it once. But, but this is by Chacham anyway. You don't have to detail it. Rav Papa Amar You have to. Rav Nachman Amar Now, why is it in general? Before we get to this case, why would it generally be by a neder? We would would we the issues about demanding that you detail it or not detail it? So. Rav, well, it demands why you would want to detail, but what's the logic that you wouldn't? So, if Nagman Amar Enotzarich, you don't normally have to detail the, the circumstances of a vow. The Amar Tzarich, if you said you do have to, Zinin the guy is laid Sometimes somebody will cut short his words, won't give all of the full circumstances. So, and he'll only know it based on what he what he heard, right? So that's certainly going back to my idea. If you would lie, it certainly would not be any good. But if somebody would say it was this and this and this circumstance, and you left out a salient detail, so maybe the annulment is not a good annulment because he didn't have all the information. But if you very much from the outset say, we're not going to go into the details, right, so then <laughs> I can't be making a mistake based on my judgment call. It's sort of like whether you say, this, do you list the specific other names the person has, or do you just do a catch-all, whatever names you might have. Alright, so that's the issue within Udarim. Now, with Papa Martzarik, you have to, because if you don't give the details, then somebody, it'll lead to a transgression Meaning somebody might have made a vow, like I know that I have a big Yetzirah to uh, go into a, you know, every time I walk by the McDonald's. So I took a vow that I'm never going to go down that street with the McDonald's. So now, you know, I tell the Chacham, I don't get money specifically, I, I took a better not to go down such and such street. So what that's really doing is it's opening me up to an Isser. I didn't tell him why, right? The whole point of that vow was to keep me from doing an Isser. And he doesn't know. Or I took a vow to allow me to collect uh, Ksuva. And I'm not going to tell him the details. And then it's going to allow me to collect money that I don't deserve. So of course you need to know the details. The Chacham can't release you from a vow without knowing what the consequences of it were and what the circumstances of it were. Okay. None. We turn to Mishnah. If a Kohen marries a woman he's not allowed to marry, he can't do the Avodah. Until he says that he takes a vow like, I will divorce my wife and I will, you know, and if I don't divorce my wife, um, I will, uh, um, uh, excuse me, I take a vow that I will not get any benefit from my wife, uh, you know, and, uh, um, and that will sort of force me to divorce her. Okay, so now my wife is forbidden to me, I can't sleep with her, I can't get any, she can't do whatever, she can't do any work around the house for me, okay, and that's going to compel me to divorce her, right, because that's not a viable marriage. Okay, so that's what I, that's what the Kohen does, and therefore we feel good that he's going to divorce her right away as soon as he gets around to it. And what can he do now that he took that vow? The Tani Allah, no Ovid, he takes that vow and look, okay, Okay, fine. You need me to divorce her. I'll take the vow, divorce her. But now I got to go do the avoda in the base of mikdash. Okay, <laughs> so he goes. He takes the vow. He does the avoda. You're ready. He gets down from the mizbeach umigaris, and then he takes care of it and he divorces her. But we let him do the avoda, feeling confident that he's going to divorce her because he took this vow. It's sort of similar to the question of collecting the ksuva. How do vows ever be effective in these types of situations if somebody can always go to a chacham and get out of it without giving the details, right? So, sort of like the question of how does the vow work for the ksuva. So if you don't have to give the details, he'll go to a chacham and he won't give the details and he'll get, a, uh, and he'll get released from it. So what could these vows do if you don't need to give the details? That's exactly the problem. So the Mar says the same answer as before by the uh, by the woman. The Medina Lobarabim, you make her take the vow in public. And if she takes the vow in public he excuse me, takes the vow in public, that will not be able to be released. Okay? So there are two ways to prevent the vow from being uh 
circumvented. One is that not necessarily to, you have to give the details of it. That's when you, this is when you go to a Chacham. And the other is you do it in public. And those two ways, one or two of them needs to work to allow these vows to be effective, you know, to play the role that they're playing here. Okay, when it's vis-a-vis the husband, the husband annulling it, right, Lefari de Sanedra doesn't work. Um, anyway, the husband is going to try to help her out to get him out, to get her out of it. Okay, the second husband. So by the husband, it's, it has to be only the solution of the Rabbim. But in terms of the case in about going to the Chacham to be released, it could either be the solution of Lefari Tataneder, or that if it's the Rabbim, it cannot be annulled. Okay, and now we, so you know, we'll just end with this and we'll pick up tomorrow to continue to explore this issue of what type of a vow can or cannot be annulled. In the case of the